Welcome to Heartstock Radio. I am your host, Carol Murphy, and today we are speaking with Yasmina Zaidman. She's with Acumen. In just a moment, she will be with us and tell us all about what she is up to there. And thank you so much again for listening. Remember that Daniel Hogan is in the studio. You can email us at heartstockradio at gmail.com. Just a moment. We will be back with Yasmina. This land was made for you and me. As I went walking that ribbon of highway, I saw the for tuning in. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. And today our guest is Yasmina Zaidman. She's with Acumen. Hi, Yasmina. Thank you so much for being on Heartstock. Hi, Carol. Thank you so much for having me. Mm-hmm. Can you give our listeners a little introduction here? What is Acumen and what it is that you do there? Absolutely. Um, so I, um, I've been Acumen for about 19 years, um, and we are an organization that is committed to solving some of the world's biggest problems related to poverty. When we started out, and I joined when it was just about two years old, I was really excited by an approach that we used that I think at the time was really quite a breakthrough, which was using capital and investment to support innovative business models that are actually focused on serving the needs of vulnerable and low-income people. This was really an experiment at the beginning. We weren't sure if we could find businesses that could meet these needs, things like access to electricity, access to agricultural inputs, uh, basic services like education, healthcare, job training, and at the same time, build a viable business. But now, 21 years later, we've seen that the model works. We've been able to invest about $150 million in 150 companies. And we've seen the companies that we support deliver products like solar lighting, job training, uh, new agricultural technologies to over 300 million people uh, living in places like Sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, and Latin America, and the U.S. as well. So that's, that's what we do. And we've learned that by being really creative about how we invest and how we support entrepreneurs, that uh, we can play a really critical role in making markets work for people that have been often overlooked by traditional businesses and investors. Well, that sounds amazingly impactful. And, you know, I'm so happy to hear these words from you because I've had this, you know, theory, uh, like so many others, that uh, business really has the power to transform the world and our economies and making impacts just as you, you're describing here. So first, I want to focus a little bit about you and your journey and your path. And how did you come to Acumen? Sounds like 19 years ago. Wow. <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, I have to say, I, I couldn't agree with you more about the potential role of business. Um, and it's something that I've been sort of pondering and mulling in different facets of my life and career. Um, and something else that I think has become really important for us at Acumen is as exciting as it is to find these innovative businesses, we've also realized that we can't do this alone. And so a lot of my work is 
trying to find a way to connect the dots with larger corporations, uh, with different kinds of government and financial institutions, just to really make this concept of using business to drive impact, something that's really mainstream. But I guess going back to, to how I started on this path, and I love this question because I get to interview a lot of candidates for jobs at Acumen. And I think there are so many things that shape us from not only like a really early age, but even sometimes before we're born, <laughs> our family history. And I've been thinking a lot about that lately, particularly with the Ukraine invasion. My father's father left Moldova, a neighbor of Ukraine, to escape persecution as a, as a young Jewish man and moved to Venezuela. And that's where my dad grew up. And then he brought my family back there when I was pretty young. I lived there from when I was like a toddler up to around five. And I was very young, but even my young brain, as I was trying to wrap my head around the world around me, found some of the, the things that are normal in Venezuela, just the stark division between the haves and have-nots and divisions that had to do with where you lived, the color of your skin, the family that you were born into, they didn't really make a lot of sense to me. And then we moved to Santa Cruz, California, which is this incredibly liberal and idyllic community. And I learned about all kinds of different social movements, but most of all learned that if you see something wrong in the world, that you have like an obligation and an opportunity to do something about it. I and mean, both my parents have worked in international health and just instilled in me the sense that, you know, we have an opportunity to be curious, to understand the challenges that other people face, and to try to leave the world better than we found it. So I think all of that together kind of drove me to looking for options in my own career that I felt connected the dots between my own interests and talents and, and also the issues in the world that I was really interested in tackling. So where did you end up going to school and studying? Yeah, so I studied at Vassar, which I was drawn to because they had a really strong theater program. And I was totally committed to being an actress. I was excited to be close to New York City. And I realized in my first year that there were a lot of different ways that I could bring my voice into the world. And I started getting drawn into revolutionary poetry from Latin America and liberation theology and economics and ended up in my time at Vassar becoming really passionate about social change and that that was sort of how I wanted to bring my voice to the world. I did a lot of work in corporate social responsibility after college and was actually getting a little bit cynical at the beginning because the movement then was much more nascent. And I learned about Ashoka, an organization that works with social entrepreneurs around the world. And it really sort of pulled me in because I was so inspired by these kind of David and Goliath stories of social enterprises and social entrepreneurs that wanted to create change, you know, outside of the system. But while I was there, I think I felt like there were so many great ideas that were still struggling to get any kind of scale or any traction or the capital that they needed. And that kind of spurred my interest in business school, which I have to say as a, as a young person, I had to explain to my mom, there's never going to be any reason for me to go to business school because I want to be an actress and an activist. <laughs> and then as our moms are often right about these things, it turns out that going to business school and, and building that skill set was exactly what I needed to be able to support the development of sustainable and scalable business models. So that was my passion. I went to, to Stanford and was sort of asking that question, of like, how could we use business models to solve these problems 
unbeknownst to me, Acumen's founder, Jacqueline Novogratz, who is also a Stanford alum, had started Acumen just the year before I went to business school. And she came and spoke while I was there. And I felt like, you know, she was asking a lot of the same questions that I was. So I joined the team. And 19 years later, I feel like we're still asking really tough questions about, you know, how we can bring these two worlds together. Yes. And uh, we've seen even uh, to a, a greater degree within those that 20 year span, I'm sure, just how impactful business can be both in both directions, in a very negative way and a very positive way. So has that changed your perspective? I mean, in that 20 year span, what have you seen and what's the biggest takeaway? That's a big question. Um, yes. I mean, I think I think we've learned a lot of very specific things, and we're actually continuously trying to share out what we learn as an organization about different ways of investing, different models of leadership that we think can drive more effective change. But on this particular question, you know, I think for me, starting about ten years ago, I realized that no matter how successful these individual companies were, and some of them have scaled to serving you know, tens of millions, one even serves over 100 million customers with access to solar lighting, that if we don't change the nature of business itself or the nature of capitalism itself, that it's just not going to be enough. And so I think more and more we're really looking at these kinds of, you know, impact-first businesses as blueprints, as role models, um, as allies to the mainstream business and financial community that, I think really needs to undergo a significant transformation. And so that's sort of, you know, sobering, but it, it pushes us to think about, you know, beyond helping to support these businesses, how do we really start to focus our own work on that amplification, building alliances, connecting the dots so that these ideas can really go much deeper than, you know, the individual region or community that they're serving. So are we making changes fast enough? I mean, how in your mind's eye from what you've seen, just how rapidly do we have to scale this new model for business in order to, <laughs> sorry to be so doom and gloom, but in order to not destroy ourselves? Yeah, that, I mean, I don't know that I can answer the question because I think <laughs> depending on what report you read or or what audience you listen to, I mean, I, I would say the consensus is probably that we're way behind in making the kinds of changes that we need to make to address that bigger fundamental question, which is yeah. an existential question. But mm-hmm. I guess I do stay very optimistic for a couple of reasons. One is I think that there is a, a shift happening, and I think there has to be that sense of possibility um, at the highest levels, right? That this is not just about well-intentioned people. We can't afford to have sort of the do-gooders in their corner making up for the harm that's caused by our system. It, it really has to involve everyone. But the other thing that that gives me hope is that whether or not we can turn this ship around as a society, and I think the jury is definitely out, what, what I see every day in working with the kinds of entrepreneurs and local leaders that we support is that we are making things better for people every day. And that's, you know, I think the the biggest challenge with climate change and the pandemic, obviously we've seen the same things, is these big systemic challenges can turn back so much progress that's being made. But on the poverty front, 
there are innovations that have lengthened lifespans, that have increased access, that have boosted productivity, that have created greater equality and opportunity for women. So we know what works. And I think it's just a matter of finding that will and motivation for everyone to kind of play their part in it. So yeah, I vacillate between (laughs) hopelessness and hopefulness, but there's you don't have to look too far to get some incredible inspiration from folks that are out there literally solving what seems like impossible problems. Yes. So we're going to take our break here. And in just a moment, we will be back with Yasmina and uh, we'll dive more deeply into Acumen and the work that you're doing there. This is Heartstock. Welcome back to Heartstock Radio. I'm your host Carol Murphy, and today we are speaking. We are speaking with Yasmina Zaidman. She's with Acumen, and tell us what is your overreaching mission there, and how does that impact who you decide to fund? I mean, there has to be some sort of litmus test, I would think, as to who you work with. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there there's so many directions that one can go in and good things that one can do. I think for Acumen, our mission is to catalyze uh, solutions that will transcend a lot of the challenges that we've seen coming from both traditional markets that really prioritize short-term profit, but also traditional aid and charity that we've seen can create dependence when there's sort of a, an expectation that you'll have resources to do something. And then when the resources dry up because policies change, priorities change, then all of a sudden that project ends and people are left without the tools and the infrastructure to, to solve their own problems. So that was kind of what we started out with. And we look for solutions really in the form of for-profit business models that are grounded in their goal of having impact for vulnerable people. That is their purpose and their mission, but are very savvy at using the tools of business to create products and services that consumers want, that people are willing to pay for, that are responsive to the needs of customers. And that's a very unique approach to driving change. You know, I think in in your podcast, I think you're talking to a lot of entrepreneurs that are doing exactly that. But it's a really exciting community of folks that are using the tools of business and using capital towards a sort of higher purpose of creating solutions that really center on people and planet. Um, So that's kind of our North Star. And I would say over the years, what we found is really critical is character. We work in places like Pakistan and Colombia, India, Kenya, where there's so much pressure because of just the basic challenges, often you know, poor infrastructure, uh, even people in our own office that you know will suddenly have no signal. And so all of our great aspirations to work together as a team are not going to happen that day. But things like corruption and systems that have not engendered a lot of trust. And we're looking for entrepreneurs that are really 
working to build something better, something with integrity, something that supports people that have, have been exploited uh, in almost every way. So that that combination of character and then more and more, I think, and this is something where we've, I think, been increasingly sensitized by our own racial reckoning in the U.S., to think about who are these entrepreneurs and to what degree are we really choosing to support and, and build capacity for entrepreneurs that may have been overlooked, not only because they have a risky early stage business, but maybe because they're female or because they represent a community or tribe or of a skin color that scares away traditional investors. And we've seen, you know, obviously the statistics on how difficult it is for women, for people of color, especially for women of color to get access to capital. So we think we have a chance to really address that head on and say we're looking for innovation from entrepreneurs that themselves bring a perspective and a lived experience that can help them build these solutions. And how were you able to create a groundswell of investors? Who are your VCs and how did you get them on board so many years ago and and even now? Yeah, so our supporters have actually been, uh, for the most part, philanthropists, um, because while we are looking to build for-profit sustainable businesses, what we've seen is that building catalytic businesses in these really difficult-to-serve markets is not generating the kind of returns that most market investors are looking for. So, and it's a combination of, you know, the effort it takes to find the business, the kind of capital we provide that's long-term and very flexible, and then all the support that we provide over the, you know, maybe five to 10 years before we exit. So we developed an innovation called Patient Capital that is fueled by philanthropy. And a lot of our supporters are for-profit companies and people who invest and entrepreneurs, but they're also people who recognize that philanthropy can play a really important role in addressing some of these sort of broken pieces of our system. So essentially, they're not saying, I want to do good, but I have to make a lot of money at the same time. They're saying, no, this is the part of my resources that's designed to help address challenges, but I want them to be scalable, sustainable, and I want them to leverage resources so we can achieve more with that uh, philanthropic investment. So we've found an incredibly diverse community of supporters, folks from governments who are you know, committed to building a more equitable world, individuals, and a lot of them are entrepreneurs and investors who feel very excited about the way that we use capital creatively to create sustainable businesses. And I spent almost 10 years really cultivating relationships with large corporations who you know, often have a very traditional lens on philanthropy, but are increasingly looking at this sort of social enterprise landscape as a space where they can learn they can understand local markets better, and they can even find partners to help them build more sustainable and inclusive businesses. So it's a, it's a diverse community, but all of them, I think, are comfortable with the idea that philanthropy can be used in new ways to catalyze longer-term, more lasting solutions um, through these kind of innovative financing mechanisms. And I'm really excited to learn more about the... Uh, the enterprises and businesses that you're investing in. Can you share with us? I know we talked about this earlier. It's hard to narrow it down because I'm sure there are many, many that we could talk about, but who are they and uh, why are they so successful? Yeah. Um, and this is, this is my challenge of the day to narrow it down. Um, but um, 
There's there's one company that, that comes to mind, and I've been asked to join their board as an investor, as play a part in, in the board. But it's a company in Colombia um, called Cacao de Colombia. And essentially, they're revolutionizing the chocolate industry. Um, it's an industry that is really famously exploitive of farmers and of the environment, but it can actually be a source of incredible value and a driver of sustainability. So the entrepreneur is someone who is really excited to work with local communities, including some amazing indigenous communities that have been essentially protecting the environment in Colombia for eons. And to partner with them to cultivate some of the most tasty and exotic and delicious breeds of cocoa, um, to work with them to create a really high quality product that they then turn into chocolate that wins prizes all over the world. So for them, rather than it being a sort of exploitive relationship with farmers, it's a partnership and they are paying living wages, working with farmers to improve their incomes um, and also to kind of give them a voice. So they highlight the community, the location for consumers of this chocolate. Um, and it is really kind of insanely delicious. I have some always at my desk um, because it's something that reminds you when you eat it that everything we do and consume doesn't have to be part of this kind of, I don't know, exploitation or consumption of the world that we can actually consume products in ways that are regenerative and that give back and that sustain communities and that prioritize people and planet. So that's a lot. That's a lot to put into a chocolate bar. And that's something that I find really inspiring in terms of what a business can be. And there's another example that's sort of kind of a little bit different end of the spectrum because it's a really early stage company in India, but it's a, a young woman who I've, I've had the privilege of meeting named Gayatri Jolly, who um, you know had the opportunity to study fashion in New York, um, was sort of on her way to building a great career and decided that what bothered her most was that in India, where she was from, that women are excluded from the fashion industry, that their jobs tend to be very menial and it limits their ability to contribute to the economy and to build economic independence. So she went back and essentially sought to kind of revolutionize fashion by training women in how to design and cut patterns. Her company is called Master G and she does both job training, but also employs women to produce her own brand. And, you know, she's quite young and uh, she's someone who I think for me represents that hopefulness about the future because she sees the limitations and rather than being discouraged by them, she's like, I, I really am, I'm going to change this. Um, and I believe she will. We've got oh, about five minutes left and I'm hoping that we can talk about the future and what lays ahead for Acumen. What do you have planned? A lot. <laughs> um, so we just, as we did this sort of look back on 20 years and, you know, what have we learned from patient capital investing? We've also taken a chance to look ahead. And frankly, the next 10 years are going to be critical for the, for the world. Um, I think there's a sense that if we take this time to focus on changing the way we do business, the way we do finance as a world, we may be able to turn the tide on some of these issues around climate change and social justice. So that's really our focus. We're looking for those places where we think the, the knowledge that we've built around things like energy access, like leadership, could be really catalytic. We want to scale up our model, you know, reach billions rather than millions. Um, and we know that to do that, it's really going to be building the right kinds of partnerships. So I think we've never been more receptive to collaboration, sharing knowledge, you know, finding like-minded folks that want to be a part of this change 
particularly focusing on how do we build the business models that can advance and improve the lives of vulnerable people and protect our planet for the future. So that's our focus. It's really taking it to the next level. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of a fundamental question, but why is this so important? I mean, you know, some would argue, well, you know, marginalized folks and the poor have always been with us, and this is just a state of life on the planet. And is it really real? You know, all of the naysayers, why, why is this so important for everyone, even those who would never consider themselves marginalized? I think it's such a great question. I mean, I think all of us have been touched by the the massive upheavals that we've seen in the last few years. And we've all, I think, been confronted by questions about our own role in the world. And I think we kind of have a choice. You know, I think a lot of people become very self-protective. They're worried about their families. They're worried about their livelihoods. It's totally understandable. And there's others that are really asking themselves that question of how can we do better? And what is my place in that? And more and more, I'm convinced that every single person, no matter where they sit, has an opportunity to be a part of this transformation. And frankly, the folks that do make that choice to kind of look beyond their own challenges and their own fears, I think, find that it's actually very enriching and very hopeful. So at the end of the day, when people ask themselves, you know, what can I do? I think it's just taking the first step because frankly, it leads to, I think, uh, especially in light of everything we're learning about mental health a worldview and an an experience of life that is, I think, much more enriching and hopeful in the face of of what we're all facing. You know, these challenges that I think haven't left anybody untouched. So I think of it as an invitation to something positive rather than a a burden. But this is definitely the moment (laughs) to make that call and to be a part of this. And if there are social entrepreneurs out there, what advice do you have to them as far as trying to acquire the funding necessary. This is a huge challenge that is ringing true for for everyone, it seems. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's really important to understand kind of the, the value proposition that you bring as a company to different kinds of investors. I think there's a whole landscape of investors now that are interested in combining impact with returns. And so to be really clear on what it is that you're offering from an impact perspective and being able to validate that. So whether it's around carbon, there's tremendous opportunities to actually um, productize or commodify uh, carbon credits, whether it's around inclusion and you're building businesses that help address some of the challenges we have around gender and racial inclusion, or whether it's around social impact, you know, thinking about the issues that, that matter to different kinds of investors, different kinds of potential customers. You know, one of the things we've learned is that the best revenue or the best capital for a startup is revenue. And so thinking about the kinds of markets that you can serve with your products, um, where there might be an appetite for that combination of a great, great product, but a one that also uh, embodies some kind of social or environmental benefit. So just that clarity, I think, helps a lot. And then there's, you know, great resources, whether it's Acumen or networks of impact investors, organizations that are sort of trying to help social enterprises find their way that I think can be a great resource in that journey. Mm-hmm. And how might everyone, all folks, find you if they want to uh, reach out and just kind of carry on the conversation? 
Yeah, I would love that. Um, so I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn um, and people can use my name to find me there. I think it's a great way to connect and start conversations. Um, and I tend to post a lot about stuff that either we're doing or stuff that I find really interesting or inspiring. So yeah, I would say LinkedIn is a good place to start. And thank you so much for sharing your story and the work that you're doing. Just really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Carol. It's great to meet you. Mm-hmm. And this is Heartstock as usual. We shall see you next week. Peace, as always. This land was made you and me. As I Heartstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. Hear our programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org.